Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you this week from Buena Vista, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, Seattle Pacific University is struggling with issues of human sexuality. And a three-judge panel in Colorado has ruled against a Christian school's ability to hire and fire teachers based on belief. And we'll have an update from the United Methodist Church. They've settled a dispute with one of the largest churches in the denomination. The church gets to leave and keep its building, but it will pay millions to the denomination. We begin today with news from the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting, which took place this week in Anaheim, California. Yeah, that's kind of been the big news for the week. Messengers to the 2022 Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting overwhelmingly approved a set of recommendations to address sexual abuse in the nation's largest Protestant denomination. Those reforms included setting up a ministry check website to track abuse of pastors, church employees, and volunteers, and appointing a task force dedicated to implementing systems to address abuse and serving as a resource to Southern Baptists in responding to abuse allegations and caring for abuse survivors. That Abuse Reform Implementation Task Force will also look into creating a fund to assist survivors and setting up a permanent committee or entity to address abuse. Do you think this will put the issue of sexual abuse behind them? Well, I doubt it. Uh, For one thing, uh, the task force recommendations were also met with spirited debate. Mark Coppinger, for example, has a messenger from Redemption City Church in Franklin, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville, and he's a leader in the Founders Group, a group of fundamentalist Southern Baptists. He dismissed the findings of the Guidepost investigation and said that the SBC did not have a major problem with sexual abuse. He dismissed a major investigation on abuse in the SBC by the Houston Chronicle. It was an investigation that was published in 2019, and three years later, it stood the test of time. So there are definitely still people in the SBC who are not able to look in the mirror and be honest about what they see, but the events of this past week were steps in the right direction. Also, the SBC elected a new president. Yeah, they did. Uh, The first day, in fact, featured the election of a new president to succeed Ed Litton, who opted not to pursue a traditional second one-year term. Three of the candidates were known ahead of the meeting, Florida Pastor Tom Askell, who is the president of the Founders Group, that group that I mentioned a moment ago. Also running were Texas Pastor Bart Barber and missionary professor Robin Hathaway. A fourth candidate, Georgia Pastor Frank Cox, was announced late after the meeting had already started. Now, we published profiles of the first three, and one of those three, Bart Barber, ended up getting the nod in an election that, in fact, wasn't terribly close. He got more than 60% of the vote. The Southern Baptists also adopted a number of resolutions. Yeah, resolutions within the SBC are non-binding statements because the Southern Baptist Convention believes in the autonomy of the local church. Nonetheless, they passed a resolution supporting rural ministries, opposing the prosperity gospel, and condemning Russia's war against Ukraine. 
They also condemned the historic coerced assimilation of Native American peoples into mandatory boarding schools and said, and this is a quote from the resolution, we stand against forced conversions and distorted missiological practices as contrary to our distinctive beliefs as Baptists in religious liberty and soul freedom. Now, a messenger successfully added to that statement that Baptists remain committed to the evangelization of Native American peoples, calling them to freely repent of their sins and believe in Jesus for salvation, even as morally neutral aspects of their culture are preserved and celebrated. And there was a bit of drama related to Rick Warren. Yeah, he's, Rick Warren, of course, is one of the nation's best-known pastors. He made a surprise visit to the floor of the annual meeting at the Southern Baptist Convention. Rick Warren, many of our listeners will know, is the author of The Purpose Driven Life and the pastor of Saddleback Church, which is one of the denomination's largest churches. He told delegates from local churches, known as messengers, that he was grateful to be in the SBC. He said, I love Southern Baptists. But he then urged Southern Baptists to set aside their differences and work together to spread the gospel around the world. Warren also said that Baptists are able to overcome all kinds of theological differences and still work together. Warren's appeal came as members of the nation's largest Protestant denomination were considering uh, expelling Saddleback for violating a ban on women pastors. That's right. While Saddleback does not uh, use the word Baptist in the name of its church, it has been affiliated with the SBC for years. And Warren, in fact, started the Southern California Church in 1980 after graduating from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. The best-selling author also spoke at the SBC's Pastors Conference back in 2011. But in May 2021, the church ordained Liz Puffer, Cynthia Petty, and Katie Edwards as staff pastors. Yeah, and that move put them in the middle of a divide over the SBC Statement of Faith, which specifically restricts the office of pastor to men. Some Southern Baptists say that the ban on women pastors only applies to the senior pastor of a church. Others, like Southern Baptist Theological Seminary President Al Mohler, say that no woman should serve as a pastor in any capacity. Mohler told RNS, Religion News Service, back in 2021, that ordaining a woman pastor violates Baptist and biblical teaching. And he said, Saddleback has taken actions that place itself in direct conflict with the stated doctrines of the Southern Baptist Convention. So what happens now? Well, at the SBC's annual meeting, Saddleback was reported to the Credentials Committee, which is charged with deciding whether or not a church is in what they call friendly cooperation with the denomination. Uh, Though some churches have left the SBC after naming women as pastors, the denomination has never officially kicked out any church for having a woman pastor. Warren, we need to take a break here, but when we return, Seattle Pacific University is one of many colleges struggling with the sexuality issues. We'll bring you an update. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break.
Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Our next story is about Seattle Pacific University. It's a Christian college that has been struggling with the question of human sexuality for years. Yeah, Seattle Pacific's student body, board, and administrators are, to put it plainly, not on the same page regarding human sexuality. On May 23rd, the Board of Trustees of SPU issued a statement, and I'm going to quote from the statement here, after careful consideration of multiple and complex concerns, the Board of Trustees has reached the decision to retain Seattle Pacific University's current employee lifestyle expectations regarding sexual conduct. Now, that statement goes on to say, the decision means SPU's employee conduct expectations continue to reflect a traditional view of biblical marriage and sexuality as an expression of long-held church teaching and biblical interpretation. That statement sounds pretty clear. Well, it does. Uh, The problem is that it hasn't been clear throughout the history of the school, and that lack of clarity has caused both students and some faculty to believe that it had abandoned those views, or at least was showing some flexibility on those views. And that, in turn, had attracted more students to the school who did not adhere to the school's historical principles. Now, the students are holding a, so far, three-week-long sit-in at Seattle Pacific University to protest the school's newly affirmed traditional view on human sexuality and its policy against hiring full-time faculty who violate it, including those who engage in homosexual behavior. On May 24th, a student protest began. The university's director of public information, Tracy Norland, confirmed the sit-in is continuing in its third week in front of the president's office. Yeah, one of the board's reasons for holding to its current views on human sexuality is that it wanted to remain in communion with its founding denomination, which is the Free Methodist Church USA, and they believe that that's a core part of the historical identity of both the school and of any Christian university, in fact. SPU's statement of faith, ratified by the Board of Trustees back in 2004, emphasizes its characteristics as historically orthodox, clearly evangelical, distinctively Wesleyan, and genuinely ecumenical. It also adopted a statement on human sexuality in 2005 that states in part, we believe it is in the context of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman that the full expression of sexuality is to be experienced and celebrated and that such a commitment is part of God's plan for human flourishing. Within the teaching of our religious tradition, we affirm that sexual experience is intended between a man and a woman. 
This statement and the school's practice of excluding LGBTQ people from full-time positions led to the controversy that began in 2021. Yeah, that began when a part-time faculty member at NSPU's nursing program sued the school, claiming that it had rejected his application as a full-time associate professor because he is homosexual. In March, uh, it was also named in a lawsuit, along with about two dozen other Christian colleges, claiming the colleges unconstitutionally discriminate against LGBTQ students while receiving federal funding. Now, the university's admissions webpage does welcome LGBTQ students. It says this, Seattle Pacific University is committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion of our undergraduate and graduate students, welcoming and supporting lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer students in all academic pursuits, faith practices, and life in community. SBU's 10th president, Daniel Martin, resigned in April 2021 amid the controversy to take a position with a health care system. And although the university's announcement of his departure did not mention the controversy as a motivation. That's right. But my sources tell me that it, in fact, was that he had resigned because he was just tired of the conflict. Uh, later that same month, April of 2021, the faculty held a vote of no confidence in the Board of Trustees. In fact, 70% of the faculty voted no confidence. So what happens next? Well, on June 3rd, which was, of course, just a, a little over a week ago, after the board's reaffirmation of the state on human sexuality and employment policy, the faculty senate passed another resolution by 80% of the votes saying that they were wanting to adopt what they called a third way. Um, however, uh, all of the discussions so far on what that third way would look like that's acceptable to the faculty does include some acceptance of gay faculty. And that is precisely what the board's reaffirmation of the school's statement on human sexuality says that it won't accept. So it's not clear really where this third way conversation is going to go. Our next story involves a significant religious liberty case in Colorado. Yeah, Gregory Tucker is at the center of this conflict. He worked at Faith Christian Academy in Arveda, Colorado, for nearly two decades. Tucker is white, but he had adopted a black child, and that experience, in part, led Tucker to organize a chapel service on combating racism that drew praise, but also a lot of complaints. And Tucker was fired just one month after he organized this chapel. Yeah, that's right. And later in 2019, Tucker sued Faith Bible Chapel International, which runs the school, alleging that there was a violation of Title VII, the federal civil rights law that prohibits employment discrimination based on race, sex, and other characteristics. Last week, a panel of judges from the 10th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals in Denver decided that the discrimination lawsuit, in fact, could proceed. But the decision is generating a lot of interest and controversy. Yeah, it is in part because other court cases have been pretty clear on this point. Faith Bible is defended by Daniel Blomberg of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, and he argued that the ministerial exception, that's a legal term, shields the school from Tucker's claim that his firing was discriminatory. 
The school has the support of more than a dozen high-profile religious groups, including the Association of Christian Schools International, which has tens of thousands of members' schools. Yeah, and ACSI, in fact, issued a statement that said, without the protection of immunity, religious schools are forced into choices with no acceptable outcome. They would either have to retain religiously antagonistic personnel to avoid the cost of litigation or preserve their religious identity but risk bankrupting the school with legal fees. Now, the school argued that Tucker's duties were ministerial in nature and pointed to language in the school's handbook describing all employees as ministers. Two of the three judges said that the school went too far. That's right, but there was a dissenting judge, Judge Robert Bacharach, and he disagreed. He said that, I would conclude that the undisputed facts show that Mr. Tucker acted as a minister in his capacity as a director of student life and chaplain. The school now is considering whether to go to the full court, the full Tenth Circuit Court, or appeal directly to the United States Supreme Court. Our next story is an update on one we've been covering for more than a year involving one of the largest United Methodist churches in the country. Yeah, that United Methodist Church is Mount Bethel Church. It's in Cobb County, Georgia, which is a northern suburb of Atlanta, and they are in conflict with the North Georgia Board of Trustees of the United Methodist Church. The two groups had been at loggerheads with each other since April of 2021, when the school sought at that time to disaffiliate from the denomination over the reassignment of its pastor, Reverend Jody Ray, against the congregation's wishes. The congregation wanted to keep the pastor. Now, Mount Bethel is the largest United Methodist Church in the Atlanta metropolitan area. It has more than 10,000 members, one of the largest in the entire denomination. The North Georgia Conference then sued the church in September to take control of its assets, claiming that good faith efforts at negotiation had failed. The settlement agreement filed this week in the Superior Court of Cobb County has been consented to by both parties and ends the lawsuit. Yeah, and according to the terms of that settlement, Mount Bethel will pay the North Georgia Conference trustees a little over $13 million within 120 days of the agreement. And in exchange for that $13 million payment, Mount Bethel will receive title to all of the property included in its main campus. Uh, The church will continue operating under the Mount Bethel name, but it may no longer use United or United Methodist in its name, uh, nor may it use the cross and flame insignia associated with the United Methodist denomination. Our next story involves a Canadian megachurch. It's called The Meeting House, and it too is one that we've been covering for a while. Yeah, that's right. One week after members of the Canadian megachurch, The Meeting House, saw their former pastor arrested and charged with sexual assault, their leadership revealed that not one but four of its former pastors have now been credibly accused. In fact, two of them have been convicted of sexual abuse. At a church town hall style meeting last week, the meeting house overseers, as church elders are called, disclosed that a third party victim's advocate hired by the church in March heard 38 reports of sexual misconduct that had largely gone unreported to the congregation. 
Yeah, and Bruxy Cavey, who grew the Meeting House uh, into a megachurch with 20 campuses across the province of Ontario, was charged with one count of sexual assault back on May 31st. We had previously reported on that. He was asked to resign back in March after an independent investigation determined that he had had a years-long sexual relationship with a woman in the church who had originally come to him seeking counseling. Warren, we're going to take another break here. When we return our weekly lightning round of ministry news, I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's SaveTheStorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. We like to use this last little segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What's up first? Well, up first, we have a resource for ministry leaders. The Internal Revenue Service has recently released its 2021 data book, which is an 80-page treasure trove of statistics profiling the country's tax base. And among the headlines, there are now about 2 million organizations that the IRS has officially recognized as tax-exempt, and 1.4 million of that 2 million fall under the umbrella of religious, charitable, or similar organizations. That number, by the way, has nearly doubled in the past 20 years. With so many new organizations, the number of Form 990s filings has gone up as well, about 26% in the past year alone. Now, I should add that that has created a huge backlog with the IRS. We have still seen very few 2021 Form 990s processed, and the IRS is still mostly still working on 2021. 20 filings. It's also worth noting that among the approximately 2 million organizations that are characterized as tax exempt and the 1.4 million that are under the religious umbrella, only about 9,000 have been audited. That's less than one half of 1%. Who's in the ministry spotlight this week? Well, we've got Food for the Hungry uh, in the ministry spotlight. It began in 1971, so it just celebrated its 50th anniversary to help the poorest people in other countries around the world and to educate people in the United States about their needs. It's been growing pretty significantly over the past few years. In fact, 20% in the past five years alone to a total revenue of about $155 million a year. So with all of that growth, we wanted to take a closer look, and I'm pleased to report that what we saw is positive. It's a member of the ECFA, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. It has a transparency grade of A from Ministry Watch, which is our top grade, and we give Food for the Hungry a donor confidence score of 95, which is about as good as you can get. 
And that means that you can give with confidence to that group. And who did Christina Darnell feature in her Ministries Making a Difference column? Up first, we have For Haiti with Love, which is a ministry that provides humanitarian care for the poor in Haiti. They've recently launched a cleanup campaign in northern Haiti uh, where trash clogs the streets and has created a breeding ground for disease. The campaign encourages local ministries and businesses to clean up the areas right around them. Kind of in a, a, you know, in the United States, we have these adopt a street or adopt a road programs. They're doing that there, and it has the dual purpose of improving public health and fostering community. The Assemblies of God's Slavic churches from across the United States are working together to help Ukrainian refugees. We haven't had any news from Ukraine in a couple of weeks, so I'm pretty excited to have this news. They've uh, shipped some 1.5 million pounds of aid, including clothing, canned food, Bibles, and medical supplies to Ukraine over the last 14 months. And finally, Can You Hope feeds 1,800 people a day at its schools throughout Kenya, where rising costs are making it difficult for families to be able to afford food and other necessities. The ministry has also planted 22 acres of corn and beans to decrease the impact of inflation rates and supply chain issues that have been plaguing not only Kenya, but other poor countries around the world. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? Well, I just want to remind everybody that our fiscal year ends on June 30th. That's the end of this month. And I'm not embarrassed to admit that we've been running so hard covering the news, and there's been a whole lot of it this month, that we have not done all we could on the fundraising front, and we're running a bit behind. Our June goal is $20,000, and so far we've raised about $5,000. Now, I should add that it's kind of normal that for we get most of our funding at the end of every month, so I'm not officially freaking out about those numbers yet. But it would be really great if uh, our listeners could take some of the drama out of the next couple of weeks by giving now, if you already know you want to help us at the end of our fiscal year. If you'd like to do that and help us finish on track, just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. And if you do give during this month, we'll send you a copy of a book I wrote with Christian journalism legend Marvin Alasky. It's called Prodigal Press, Confronting the Anti-Christian Bias of the American News Media. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DuBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Sabbath. Writers who contributed to today's program include Rod Pitzer, Shannon Cuthrell, Peter Smith, Holly Mayer, Yonat Shimron, Steve Raby, Kim Roberts, Adele M. Banks, Bob Smetana, and Christina Darnell. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you. 